You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. All right. Welcome, everyone. Thank you all for joining us tonight for tonight's M Pavilion panel titled Night Moves, Making Space for Late Night Creativity. First off, a big thank you to M Pavilion for hosting us tonight and to Trapped for supporting the event. And a warm welcome to everyone else joining us on the stream tonight. Thank, feel free to get in the chat room and get the comments going. And a big thanks to Skylab Radio for making it all happen. My name is Paul Lewis, and I'm a town planner at Tract, an interdisciplinary practice committed to creating memorable and sustainable places, neighbourhoods and cities. Before we begin, I'd like to, to respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of the land, the Yalukut Willem of the Boonwurrung peoples of the Kulin Nation, and pay respect to their elders past, present and emerging. First Nations people have been on this continent for over 100,000 years, the oldest continuous culture of anywhere on the earth, and we have much to learn about what their connection to place means from our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures. A connection that has evolved through the tens of thousands of years of exploration, technology, spirituality, art, music and dance. Any discussion or consideration of place, culture and creativity requires us to pause and reflect on what it means to live and derive benefit from being on stolen land, particularly given planning's role in the colonial project. This land always was and always was be, always will be Aboriginal land. To move to tonight's topic, the urban night has historically been characterised by a range of antisocial behaviours, deviance, noise, violence, illicit substances, crime, resulting in strict policing, surveillance and no, no small amount of fear and moral panic. Yet at the same time, it's maintained a certain allure and mystique. As British academic Andy Lovett writes, the nighttime is a liminal time in which the world of work is seen to lose its hold, a time for and of transgression, and of a time of spending, a time to be something the daytime may not let you be, a time for meeting people you shouldn't, for doing things your parents told you not to, that your, that your children are too young to understand. It's a time Sylvia Reef argues is a time in which other modes of being, acting and living can be explored. Or as the Arctic Monkeys sang, this town's a different town to what it was last night. Tonight we're here to discuss the often fraught intersection of planning and late night creative spaces. The spaces, venues, warehouses, squats or otherwise that provide a location for late night creative production. And we're privileged to be joined by four experts on the subject. Dr. Kate Shaw of Melbourne University, John Perring of The Tote, Bar Open and most of your other favourite pubs, Rag Batia of The Cool Room Collective and Ed Service from Moreland City Council and the Collingwood Arts Precinct. Before we start, I'd just like to acknowledge that these are very different worlds a lot of the time. I'd love to get a show of hands of where everyone fits in and what background they're coming from. So can I get a show of hands of who here is involved with the built environment or planning industry? Good to see. And who here is involved in late night creative spaces or alternatively has been at a venue later than 1am in the last month? It's a good mix as well. Well, great to see we've got a good mix of people here tonight. <laughs> So, to kick things off, Thank you. I might throw this over to you, Rag. Tell us, what are late-night creative spaces and why are they important, particularly for marginalised groups such as LB LGBTIQ plus folk and people of colour? So, I'd say late-night creative spaces encompasses a range of institutions, some like the Toad, some like the party people here would know as the Mercat. Some would be other gig or band spaces. So I would say a late night creative space is a space where people can congregate, you know, 
after 9 p.m. to engage in creative practice, to socialize, to dance, to listen to music, to engage with community and to collaborate with each other. In terms of what is the appeal of them, particularly for marginalized folk, what these spaces can offer is a space to be yourself with less risk to your existential well-being. For a lot of you know, queer people or other marginalized groups, being yourself, whether that's holding hands with a partner or kissing a partner or simply dressing with the gender identity you feel you identify as, can come with consequences of violent reprisal in a public space. So these late night creative spaces or clubs or venues or any, any of these permutations can offer a temporary refuge to explore that and present as you would like to rather than as society tells you to. And can you tell me a little bit about Cool Room and what you've been doing in these spaces? So Cool Room, I guess, we've, we've flowed into different forms over the five years we've been running. We're essentially, you know, we're a collective of artists, of organizers, of activists working at the intersection of, I'd say, politics and experimental and dance music. So we've done events ranging from panels to parties to gigs to workshops, all with a slight political bent and all driven with a theme of music as well. Um, we've sought to create, I'd say, healthier nightlife culture in the areas of drug harm reduction, in the areas of reducing gender-based violence and sexual harassment in these spaces, in pushing for better representation of LGBTIQ plus people, of people of color, of black folk, of women in these spaces, and are always just trying to stay on the cusp of where we feel attention needs to be directed the most, and that sometimes includes directing partygoers' attention outside of the immediate party space and to campaigns like for the Japurang trees or for related political causes as well. Great. Kate, as a sort of planning expert on the panel, from a planning perspective, what's the value of late-night creative spaces? Um, from a planning perspective, I mean, there are so many different ways of thinking about it. I think Raj's way of talking about that capacity to just be who you are has, like, really profound implications for planning, right? I mean, <clears throat> planning, social planning is about, um, you know, it, in its greatest ideal, about creating safe places um, and places that are as valued for their use uh, as for their exchange. Um, although we're pushing shit up and all on that one. But... <clears throat> um, you know, but 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 also, and you know, I don't particularly want to talk about the economy, um, and 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 it's always sort of a shame to reduce arts and culture to its economic value, because there's so much more than that. Um, and of course, <laughs> when they started doing that in 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 London, trying to sort of quantify the value of arts and culture in order to continue its funding. Um, the conservative governments kept on turning around and actually asking for the justification and evidence of the economic value. I mean, it was like it was crazy and they kind of dug a hole for themselves that they really didn't need to be in <laughs> by, you know, trying to, try, trying to sort of justify themselves in that way. Um, but arts and culture enable not just a way of being but I guess a way of interacting. 
um, and th they enable the creation of community. Um, and you know, we all know the enormous social, emotional, psychic benefits of those kinds of connections. That you know, really, I mean, they can be quantified, but they're way, way, way more than that. And. Tell us a little bit, for those who aren't particularly engaged in the planning or built environment space, how does planning in the planning system interact and regulate these types of spaces? Well, John and I can talk about that, you know, at length really. I mean, I, I cut my teeth in this sort of space in the, in the late 1980s when I was very, very young. Um, with the SB in St Kilda, you know, there were several rounds at, at <clears throat> knocking it down for various, you know, luxury hotels and, 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 and some such. But it was, <clears throat> it, was, it was the music, it was used as a comedy venue, it was, it was you know, poetry, there were readings, there was, it was, you know, it was just funny. It was just a funny, you know, the downstairs bar, they used to call it the Star Wars bar because of all of the sort of weird and wonderful people that hung there and played pool and... and you know, I mean, one of the th one of my favourite memories of that place, and, and I could talk about this forever, so do feel free to stop me, although, <clears throat> if you try. Um, but there was this old bloke called Scoop, because, you know, we thought he probably had a journalistic career at some point, but he was kind of well beyond um, working capacity. And he, was, he was very funny. He'd kind of come in and, like, turn the light on and off and go, oh, we're psychedelic, you know, and... and, and <laughs> And and um, and he, you know, he'd buy one beer maybe, and he'd be there all night. Um, and look, a few times I found him out on the street, beating up, you know, around St Kilda, you know, in those days in the eighties. It was, you know, it was tough times. Sometimes I saw him with gobs of spit on him from, you know, some pleasant young boys from Blackburn who, you know, dropped in for the evening. At, at, at the downstairs bar, he was safe. You know, he was he was always he was just part of us and he felt at home. He felt like he could do anything, say anything and people loved him and, you know, we all got to know him and, you know, I mean, look, we all know these stories and we hear them time and time again. Um, so when we started fighting for um, the, the retention of the SB as a, as a music venue, that was the hook and, you know, yes, there was all that stuff about the historic building and, you know, there were any number of ways that you could sort of slice that cake. But really, when it came down to it, it was about maintaining a living room for a whole lot of people that had cheap rent, were living alone in tiny little flats. Um, that you know, this was their living room, um, and that was way too subtle a concept to argue in a planning tribunal. But look, in, in weird ways, we did sort of slip it in, and 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 you know, it started to kind of get a a heritage listing for its social and cultural significance, which was really sort of funny because the thing that made it most culturally and socially significant as far as the um, Heritage Victoria was concerned was the fact that so many people got organised to protect it. <laughs> so, you know, it kind of became a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. And, you know, to my great delight, it's still there. Um, so, you know, I mean, that's when a lot of us learned, started learning about that stuff. Um, Pairing um, runs, ran yayas and, and, um, 
and Bar Open and still runs Bar Open and the Tote. And we started connecting through Fair Go for live music. 2004. In two, in two, it was 2003. 2003. And, 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 and the first meeting was 2004, right? And, and so, look, the, the planning issues have always been... I mean, we know what they are. Um, it's, it's, number one, gentrification, the desire to, you know, knock down cheap pubs to convert into, you know, um, <clears throat> flash housing or hotels or whatever. Um, there was um, the obvious... Um, issue that got us together, I think, about people moving into the hood and starting to complain about the noise that had been in from the pub that had been coming there for the last 30 years, which is the reason why they wanted to come to the area, because it was, you know, so, I mean, it's, just, it's such a cliche now even to talk about that. But so, so that, that then produced this principle um, that we finally did argue into the planning scheme called, um, you know, the agent of change, which I'm sure you're all familiar with, meaning that the, the, the agent that changes the situation that actually moves in, which is more often than not the, <clears throat> the new residents or the developers of the, of the housing um, have the onus on them to remediate any noise impacts that might um, inflict their new residents, as opposed to putting that burden on the pub. Um, and then there was the liquor licensing issues, um, and, you know, John can talk about that, but that was a, you know, a terribly long story that also had planning issues involved. So I guess one way or another we've been, you know, and I ended up as an academic at Melbourne Uni in, in, in planning and urban geography and I guess we just all sort of ended up from various, um, you know, points in our lives and positions in our lives trying to work out ways of kind of linking up all of these issues and making sense of them so that there could be a coherent planning response and a policy response going forward. Is well, I just said going forward. I'm sorry. Um, and a policy response um, that that um, could anticipate um, the you know the the the, the, the um, new problems that might come along. Yes, forward. so, so, so that, that's, that's a roundup of, of some of the basic planning issues, but it goes very, very deep and it's, and, and it's, and it's kind of crucial to the survival of the scene. It's a perfect way to cut forward to you, John, as a venue owner and someone who's been very involved in fighting for venues. Could you tell us a little bit about, in that role, what are some of the challenges facing you and facing venues in Melbourne today? Well, I think there's a, there's a major hole in law... And that is that that the and particularly planning law, but but I think it's much broader than that, and 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 that's around sort of protecting this idea of culture and how it's expressed and where it needs to be expressed ex expressed spatially. So all the problems that we have with with licensing and um, uh, um, uh, and in planning are all because of the in inadequacy of this not being thought through to give some sort of framework so that when regulations get written that they, they, they protect, protect our, our rights in order to, to have a cultural practice. And that means art and music primarily, but, but when I'm saying culture, I really mean it in the, in the broader sense. It's really living in, in, the, in the public sphere, I think. It's, the, it, it's as broad as you can, you can possibly think. Um, and, and, and you know all the laws 
you have a look at liquor licensing, it's all about, end of the day, it's about making sure that misbehaviour doesn't, you know, doesn't happen. Um, you go into planning, it's about the protection of, of amenity, like we all want to live in some place where nothing happens. Um, you know, it's, it's in, and you look at environmental uh, noise laws, it's all this race to a silent world. And it's not about balance between being able to sort of um, express yourself through music and and people's people's right to tranquility and that sort of discussion. It's all about this this race to a completely sort of silent world where nothing happens. And I know um, I know you're very active in this space. Could you say a little bit about your role working with the EPA as? A an industry advocate around the kind of noise regulation that affects venues? Yeah, well, this is, this is something that's been sort of quietly ticking along for about five years. And, and, you know, basically my key political strategy is you just turn up for the meetings, right? You just keep doing it. And, you know, after a while they just can't get rid of you. And, uh, <laughs> uh, but at the same time you get to know it as well as they do and you're able to to articulate a sort of a, um, an alternative perspective. But if you have a look at the, the current noise regulations, the, the current music noise regulations are about to expire in July this year. So they have to re replace them. They've overhauled the Environment Act. Um, so they have to write new ones. So the new ones, basically, they're called environmental laws, but they don't protect the environment in any way. They just protect humans' uh, uh, ability to uh, how we actually experience it. Um, and because they have no cultural value for, for sound art or for music or for you know, the noise that's created from the process of dance, they just treat this as, as noise. So all the regulations are all about trying to keep that in check. And so when it sort of comes to a regulation, they have these sort of square lines. They can't, they can't vary any of this. It's either you're over or you're under. Um, and if you're over, then you've got to do something about it. If you're really over, they'll, they'll fine you substantially. As opposed to having a discussion about, you know, what's the value of what's actually going on here, both in cultural and economic terms, and trying to balance this um, against uh, people's right to, to um, a quiet environment. I think this question of balance is probably a nice one to shift over to you, Ed. As someone who works for council and also had a lot to do with working with council, tell us a little bit about council's competing priorities and competing obligations in providing space for late night activity, but also providing for the kind of residential amenity that Kate and John have brought up. Yeah, sure. I mean, to be clear, I work for the Arts and Culture Department of Council as opposed to the Planning Department of Council. I am a trained planner, but at Mourn City Council, but I'll always side on the side of the arts and culture, So, and I speak for myself, not for the council tonight. Um, when I first moved to Melbourne from Wellington about 10 years ago, I moved into a warehouse in Brunswick, and um, it was a classic artist warehouse in Brunswick, paid 50 bucks a week rent with pretty regular warehouse parties, which were pretty regular in, in, in Brunswick at the time. And um, as Kate said, it's a pretty boring story, pretty classic story of gentrification that is so beyond cliche, but, you know, apartment... And the one I worked in is the one, if anyone's familiar, down Albert Street next to Safeway, and it's probably one of the worst buildings in 
Melbourne, in my opinion, and absolutely in Brunswick, it's extremely high. The ground floor interface is despicable. There's nothing going on. Um, yeah, um, and then Brunswick's changed significantly, gentrified significantly, and it is, it's an interesting balance between obvious gentrifying, particularly gentrifying resident amenity who they want quiet mornings and um, clean streets and things like that, and also balance between, the Mourns does have a pretty active, proactive stance in support of arts and culture and late night venues and arts infrastructure and um, things like that. Uh, and it's the reason that Brunswick is such a cool place and like an expensive place. Like I said, I paid 50 bucks a week rent back in the day and the same spot there is now at least, whatever, 200 bucks a week. <laughs> I don't know. But the point is that like Moreland City Council from rates and from culture directly cashes in on its cultural value. And, um, and in policy, we do have a proactive stance in supporting that type of activity, supporting late night music venues, but it's a balance of amenity and culture. And I guess a, a, a big part of it is that it's very much a squeaky wheel outcome. And the, the squeakiest wheel is often the resident com that complains, and there's a lot more res residents than complaining than residents submitting to council or councillors about the value of culture in late night venues, maybe because they're sleeping in. But, um, they missed the meeting, didn't quite make it. Yeah, yeah, they might not make the meetings, that John does, in respect to that. And it's really important to make the meetings because a lot of the balance that council weighs up is by residents saying things. Or residents, property owners, coming to meetings, talking to councillors and getting involved. Um, but yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, councils manage everything from aged care to, to street festivals. Um, and they've, they've got really important work to do in, in, in every sphere. But, um, and they, like Kate, I agree that like, the economic justification for the arts, while it, is, while it is significant and relevant, is the weakest card in the hand of the arts. Everything else that it contributes is so much more significant, including like a really democratic, balanced and inclusive society and all the subcultures that can develop in these late night spaces eventually turn into what makes Melbourne the, the greatest city in Australia, in my opinion, and, and, you know, Brunswick, one of the coolest kind of, the best areas to live in and the best areas to foment ideas and creativity and the Brunswick Design District that we're launching in Melbourne now is in, in Brunswick as well now. These all come from these things that foment in these late night music venues. And I think that the value of these, when seen in economic terms, is, is vastly kind of understated. Kate, perhaps you can expand a little bit. I mean, everyone knows what gentrification is in broad terms, but I think in planning, a lot of the planners here would know that we've got different competing objectives in terms of urban densification, providing for greater housing stock, providing for denser, more sustainable neighbourhoods. How does that come into conflict with our need to protect the land uses that might make a lot of noise quite late that are already there? Uh, <clears throat> oh, well, it was profound. Um, and... Gentrification is, of course, the most difficult issue to address, although it can be addressed. Um, but, well, the, 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 it's, at its very basic level, it's about um, a coincidence of um, people involved in the exchange of land, 
landowners, developers, recognising that they can make an enormous amount of money out of redeveloping undervalued um, uses um, and the highest value use by far in Melbourne uh, <clears throat> at the moment and for the last 30 years has been residential. Um, and then combined with the, you know, the cachet of the inner city and people wanting to come and live in the inner city, um, and it's a, you know, it's a perfect storm. Um, and, of course, it happens all over the world, uh, and not just in the you know, OECD-developed world. It's happening in pretty much every city that you can care, care to think of, parts you know, thereof at least. Um, look, it's complicated. I, I, I don't know if any of you saw a piece that I wrote in The Age a couple of days ago that was actually looking at... Um, it was called Why is the Government Enthralled to Corporate Giants and um, Cowboy Developers? Um, <clears throat> and, and I was talking about the Westgate Tunnel, Transurban being the giant, and Corkman, the Corkman Hotel, um, and the cowboys that knocked that down as, as, as the cowboys, and how government is so reluctant to regulate and to actually, <laughs> you know, pull these companies into line. You know, now I'm at the moment, a, a, a momentary digression, but the point of that piece was you know, the Transurban saying, oh, well, we can't go on with the tunnel because, you know, we've found soil contamination. I was like, well, fucking pay for it. Do you know, I mean, the, the, I mean, the, the, the actually the um, amount of profit that Transurban is going to make is in the tens of billions of dollars. Um, and the government can... Uh, legislate to require Transurban to reduce some of its profits to fix the problems on Westgate. Yeah, it's, that is legally possible. Similarly, the government can compulsorily acquire the Corkman site from the Cowboys. But here is, here is a tricky point in law. The government is saying that they are going to be required to pay the cowboys highest and best use. Now, that means not the price of a vacant site, a site of, of like, you know, rubble. It means its potential use as a 12-storey development, which is what the planning scheme allows, right? And that price alone has doubled in the last five years. So the government, we, the taxpayers, would be paying at least $10 million for the site. Now, my argument, and it's a little bit subtle, but is basically that we could amend the Land Acquisition Act so that we are paying for existing use, not for potential use. And that, again, is quite doable. If it were done, it would be quite revealing how the process of speculation completely skews the Australian property market in ways that does not happen in most other countries in the world, especially in European countries. Even though they're expensive, speculation is actually controlled. So to bring that back to gentrification, the very clear way of controlling it is actually just to limit the extent to which property can be transferred or for the price that it can be transferred. Now, I mean, that's fanciful in this political context, right? But legally, it's doable. The other way of dealing with it, which is much more doable, is just to ensure that um, 
music venues, cultural venues, social meeting places, places of use value that we regard as significant and important are protected um, from that speculative process. And there's any number of ways in which that can be done. And John and I have made various submissions to zoning reviews and various other reviews. And it's funny, you know, the officers look at these arguments and they go, yeah, we could do that. Um, <laughs> nah. <laughs> do you know? I mean, that's sort of the level. It will come one day. I mean, I think it has to. Um, and we're all a part of making that happen. Um, there's been a lot of talk in this panel so far about the sort of formal venues and talking about the legal rights of venues and legal processes, but there's also a whole range of informal activity that's going on in cities all the time, particularly, the, for example, the kind of warehouse events that Ed was bringing up earlier. I might throw this out there, that the question, that what happens when these formal spaces don't exist? And what's the appeal of these informal, organic activities that then take their place? Yeah, I feel... Um, I think the first thing to look at contextually is that there's a long history... I'm going to talk particularly in the context of dance music, but this relates, I think, to guitar music and other forms of music as well. Um, in the context of dance music, there's a long history of these kind of renegade events in you know, illegal or semi-legal spaces, you know, non-sanctioned spaces, non-clubs or pubs or band rooms in warehouses where people will bring in a sound system and a generator for a night and disappear in the next day. You know, in the 90s in the UK, it was birthed to a lot of musical cultures which are still incredibly influential today in New York in the 90s, in all over the world. And the appeal is really strong in a number of ways. Um, there's, I think a big part of the appeal of, you know, nighttime creative spaces in general is transgression and the ability to transgress to varying degrees depending on the environment. And going into a space that feels like you're not allowed to be there, where you can essentially do whatever you want is really appealing. I think particularly for young people who feel very disenfranchised today, who don't want to go to planning meetings because they don't feel like they'll actually have any influence. So why would you wake up early and go to these meetings when you can break into a warehouse which hasn't been used in 10 years and actually just do what you want to do and create you know, the microspace you'd want to live in for eight hours and a few hundred bucks? Um, Raga, I'm interested to ask, I know Cool Room has done both illegal and legal warehouse parties in the past. Personally, I've been to both. I wonder what your experience is like. In, for example, recently in Maribyrnong, you did the um, Due West party. And the experience for you and for your punters of running something with and through council and otherwise... I mean, there were a lot of great things about it. So for context, we did a party for Dewest Arts Festival, which was run by Maribyrnong City Council, in uh, Kinnear's Ropeworks, which is currently managed by RNF Property, which will be turned into apartments and a big development in the relatively near future. Um, it was incredible having access to a space which we would have never otherwise had access to. And I think for the people coming, that felt really exciting. To go somewhere where there isn't the... Every nightclub comes with context, and often those contextual associations are not great, whether it's the you know, pragmatic things like the security are very narky or just the area isn't safe or 
just the feel of it feels very corporate or policey or something. When you're going into a new space, you have the ability to build your own new context in that space. That's what's really exciting to us of working in new spaces. But it was also difficult because it felt like, and a lot of Sage's council and developers' desires were not aligned with ours, and th some things we thought were valuable didn't translate to them. And in the end, it was a really great exercise that I'm grateful we did, but it's difficult to learn how to advocate for yourselves in that, those contexts where ultimately they have the power and that if you pull out, it's not a lot to them and they set the terms and they don't really understand the non-tangible value you're offering to people. Can, Can I, I just add something on the end of that? Well, I mean, a lot of this comes down to really the ability to have as of right use for, for, for cultural purpose. One of the reasons that... Um, Melbourne in particular has had such a strong music scene over a very long time is that you have as of right to play music in, in licensed premises, primarily bars bars and um, uh, hotels. So, for instance, the tote puts through 2,500 bands uh, a year. Bar Open does, you know, 1,500. And I'm not trying to boast about this, but just give you some idea of amount you know, how many actually bands are going on the stage, playing a set and getting off, and the next band's coming on. As you, of right, meaning that you don't have to have a permit. Like, right. you don't have to apply separately for a permit for that. You use. can just go and do it legally. Now, why it's important for artists is, if, if artists and musicians are actually going to be able to, to maintain a, uh, an arts practice economically, uh, they need places to play. And it, it's all very uto utopian to find to be able to have sort of pop-up warehouses and, you know, you sneak into a gig. But it's not, it's not really, a, from the, an artist's perspective, you, you know, you can't build your career in that sort of environment. Um, and so that's why, as of, and really I believe that as of right use needs to extend beyond just uh, licensed spaces and it leads to... You know, and that comes back to this idea of being able to recognise cultural spaces within the planning system, which it really doesn't doesn't do at all. It's very silent on the subject of of cultural spaces, and we need better definitions. And those things that that uh, Kate was referring to that we put submissions into was all about trying to get those definitions put into the planning scheme, um, and so that you know all the zoning various laws c could could then say, oh, well, you can do that here. So, for instance, in, in industrial spaces, why not have as of right use for, for, for cultural activity? So you can do a whole bunch of things, you know. You can, do, you can do gigs there, you can do performances there, you can do exhibitions there, you know, you can put studios into the things, you can live there. All those things can be mixed up uh, and then be done legally. You don't have to worry about being booted out um, I, reckon, I reckon you need both. I mean, you need all of it. It's a spectrum. Um, and um, uh, that spectrum should be from the, you know, illegal, you know, warehouse under the bridge, you know, sort of parties that are, you know, there one minute and go on the next, right through to the, you know, the institutionalised ESPY, you know, which has been there for, you know, 100 years, one way or another, play, playing music. I mean, you need, you need all of those spaces. And I think the problem that we're facing at the moment, I mean, what John and I are trying to do is kind of move the line between legal and illegal, you know, f f formal and informal, 
over to the to the left to the to the more informal to the you know to the to the more illegal to try to expand that zone of what constitutes legal um, and I think the challenge that we're all really facing is that that kind of quasi legal uh, and informal sector is actually really at the most the most under threat and I can explain why if if, if Paul's interested in I mean, I agree with that just from my context at Mo and um, you know uh, Mullen, Brunswick, Coburg has a history of warehouse parties, illegal, mostly illegal. And um, as my role as an arts infrastructure officer, I'd um, had some entities come to me saying, we want to run a legal one, we want to do a temporary legal warehouse party in a venue here. And it's zoned as industrial three zone, so the as of right uses are quite limited to industry. And I talked to our planners back in a temporary, as a temporary use permit, and that doesn't really exist. Like, for them to do this, they would have to apply for a three-month planning scheme amendment to... Well, not a planning scheme, a planning permit to change the use permanently of the site. And these are, these are people with money who are willing, well. willing to kind of do that. And it's like, Mullins, the position of council is, yeah, we support these kind of activities, we want to help them happen legally, but the planning scheme doesn't allow it whatsoever because changing the use is a, is a permanent application. Might and you haven't even talked about the building code and what that can do uh, to you. Let alone the building we won't code go there, but you know, that's, that's a whole, whole well, other world of let, just torture. Let me, let me go there just to, to, to this extent, because I think it's, it's, it's important. What's happening with the building standards and with the planning standards, it very simply, is that they are increasing. <clears throat> so we are becoming a more regulated, you know, s safer society. What that means is that that low threshold that we've been talking about, you know, to a venue setting up, to a muso kind of, you know, I always like to talk about sort of, you know, climbing out of the primordial soup kind of, you know, amphibiously slipping out of the bed, like actually even up to the corner in a hotel and playing on the guitar, you know. But with I mean, the compliance staircase. <laughs> well, yeah. So, so that low threshold is constantly being... Increased because you've got to have compliant staircases and banisters that are now, you know, like five centimetres higher than they were before. Now, th this has one really very obvious problem, and that is that Melbourne really kind of trades on its, you know, attic and basement bars. Um, and so no new bars like that can set up <clears throat> over a certain size. They can if they're below 250 square metres. That's really small. No new bars will be able to set up like that if they don't have stacks of money to comply with all of the current regulations. M more insidiously, and I don't think many people realise this, for those existing at attic and basement bars, if they want to do works to you know, bring, like, just to update and make their buildings a little safer than they were 10 years ago. If they have to apply for a permit and do work to, you know, up to sort of around 50%, um, you know, work to the building, they then have to meet the higher building standards, which they're not going to be able to do. So 
the new standards actually act as a disincentive to these venues to do necessary works. And as a consequence, they are going to become more and more dangerous, right? So, I mean, I, I do a lot of work in Germany um, <clears throat> and one of the most interesting there is that there are these kind of differential levels um, of standard uh, required depending on the use. Uh, and then there's a whole kind of system of contracts that actually allow people to do stuff that you know would make building surveyors' hair stand on end here, uh, which would just be completely illegal. Which there is kind of quasi illegal, you know, qu quasi legal. It's like you know we know but we don't know. And they get it, you know. I mean, the reason why Berlin and Hamburg and places like that are you know are, are, are so strong in their music scenes um, is because they get it. Mind you, they are all gentrifying out of this world as well. So you know that. And then Berlin has just instituted a rent freeze on all rental properties in Berlin. How cool is that? So, I mean, you know, there are always things that we can learn. But at the moment, there's a sleeper issue with our building regs that ultimately, I fear, is going to wipe out that kind of quasi-legal, informal sort of category of venues unless we... Uh, do something. Can I just touch on what I think as well, like, is a case study for the long-term examples when, like what Kate and John said, when these regulations get so tight, even, you know, these kind of quasi-legal spaces are just not doable at all, is Oakland, Oakland, California is, you know, a city where gentrification has been such a powerful force and where the average rent for a one-bedroom apartment now is, like, 2,200 US dollars a month and where there has been a history of being a really strong creative community, a really strong, you know, LGBTIQ plus community, a lot of communities of color, so much incredible art came out of there in the 90s and 2000s and today. Um, not sure how many people are aware of this. In 2016, there was, uh, for people in the community, a legendary warehouse space called Ghost Ship, which was a warehouse converted into artist studios, which didn't have any residential permits but there was a couple dozen artists living there, kind of with places separated by wooden pallets, and they would have small parties. It was a, a real staple of the US dance music scene. And it was just because there was no other option of any other space to do these kind of events in. There was very other, few other options for people who could even afford to live in that city. They would either be displaced or live in these, you know, illegal, it's not a squat, but you know, not in code with the planning and regulation around the space. So in 2016, there was a lot of electrical issues within the building and there was a party there and there was a fire in which about 80 people attended and 36 were killed. And it was a really devastating blow that kind of resonated around the world through the dance music community. Like, I think a lot of people here who maybe play music would have consumed music from people at that party or had friends or friends of friends that were connected to it. And this is just what happens when these regulations keep getting more stringent and there's no option for venues or organizers to meet halfway. They go further underground, they take risks to continue their practice and organizing, and sometimes these risks can have really dire consequences. Yeah, and the irony of that is that that fire would make the make the controls even more stringent and even push them further underground yep. and push and this, people further away from People them. were evicted from their homes because other people were in these similar situations and the government started cracking down on them. And unfortunately, you know, these people who did get pushed out of these situations who were harmed by these stricter regulations the most were often people who were very marginalized, 
in terms of class, race, gender identity, sexuality, etc.? Um, perhaps looking at one example where the planning scheme and planning regulation has been able to protect late night creative space and cultural space more generally. Ed, perhaps could you tell us a little bit about Collingwood Arts Precinct and about the Schedule 6 to the Special Use Zone that's put in place there? Yeah, I mean, I guess CAP, uh, Collingwood Arts Precinct, for anyone who's not familiar, is the big um, ex-TAFE building right next door to the tote. It's about 6,000 odd square metres of wettable floor area, I think. Or am I confusing the whole area? I can't remember. With a big courtyard in the middle and a foyer that the government... Uh, about 10 years ago decided to turn into affordable creative space in Collingwood in perpetuity and Contemporary Arts Precinct Limited is a company that was a non-for-profit organisation that was created to manage that transition. Um, and yeah, Cats being lucky on a number of fronts, mostly so that it has ministerial, it's got a statewide profile and it's got ministerial support and it's had a few pretty major interventions from the planning minister who were also lucky enough that it's his local seat and um, one of the things is that the site was rezoned to a special use zone to allow a wide range of as of use rights from from a, a place of assembly which means a place where people can come and hang out to a food and drink premises I mean we don't have to apply for a permit for any of these uses cabaret and nightclub is we do have to apply for a permit for a nightclub but the difference between a cabaret and a nightclub is live performance so I'm not sure we can make that work um, uh, but in particular, where the, uh, the agent of change cause, as we've talked about before, as I understand it, is that um, any venue designated with previous use as a, any site designated with previous use as a live music performance venue is applicable to this, to this um, schedule, meaning that, uh, that anyone who is changing the situation needs to say it build sound attenuation or soundproof their building next door. And CAP was lucky enough to be added to the schedule to the special use zone. I think we're maybe the only property well, on the schedule. I don't think that was luck. <laughs> yes, but I mean, yes, well, we're out in Richard Wynn's municipal uh, seat, so I think that helped a little. But yes, uh, luck and the perseverance of a lot of committed individuals. And like, that's another key thing. It's a bit of a tangent, but... You know, looking at these things from the outside is that can seem like bureaucracy in many ways and decisions just happen and, you know, things just roll out and gentrification continues and policies we can. I understand that most people don't want to get involved in these meetings and because they feel powerless and often they are and it's very true. But it's people all the way down, you know, in bureaucracy. And that's one thing I've learned getting involved in bureaucracies is that there's people making key decisions in every step of the way. And if some people weren't there, CAP would never have happened. Um, yeah, and... Um, Anyway, in this case, CAP is mentioned, mentioned on, the, on the schedule to the special use zone as you have to be a live music venue or on the schedule. And we're on that schedule. So therefore, the building next door, which is a classic irony, um, was Magic Johnson Studios, which had a lot of great artist studios, affordable artist studios, operating for the state for free, um, pretty affordable. Um, and they were purchased by Tim Gurner and his massive... Um, development organisation and it's been turned into an eight-storey development. Uh, first it was apartments and then the, the market kind of went down a little and now it's hotels and hotels and apartments. It was 12 storeys, we got it down to eight, working with John and some others and they've got pretty significant sound attenuation as I understand, so we should be able to have gigs. It's all triple glazed all along. Triple glazed, winter gardens, things like that. 
we should be able to have gigs in our courtyard and and they shouldn't be able to hear it in theory. But um, the, the point is, I mean, but I guess one thing to add in that is they can still complain. Like if the, if the tenants hear the oh, noise, yeah, yeah. they can complain. It doesn't actually change the EPA. No, no. But um, in the reality is they won't be able to hear it. Yeah, so, I'm hoping so, yeah, because yeah. we're planning to put some good gigs on there. But the, one of the important things there was it's because there was a permit applied for to build an eight-storey building yeah. and there was no activity at CAP at that point because there are no artists on site with the exception of Circus Oz, yeah. but they're really their own entity. Um, there was no sort of pre-existing use. So agent of change, if they didn't change the zone and add it to the schedule in the planning scheme, they wouldn't have been able to get the protection of the agent of change clause. Exactly, yeah. So it was a strategic move on the behalf of the planning minister to be able to use that clause to protect future youths. Yes. Um, and, Which, and, and it worked. And so, so roundabout, though, and unfortunately you kind of have to do that. You know, you'd need the planning minister's personal involvement to get on that schedule. Yeah, well, almost. it certainly saved our boat, bacon because we've, we've got three stages. Circus Isles have got, I think, three rehearsal spaces. There's an amphitheatre um, uh, as well. Um, plus there's a performance space, I think, in PBS. There's probably more I don't know about since it's all been sort of, you know, it's constantly in change. Um, so there's a really high density of existing and future live performance spaces. So it's sort of critical to win that battle. Otherwise, that vision could not be realised and it would have compromised, compromised uh, the tote's ability to put to put show, would have compromised our R3 stages as well. Sounds like and a step in the right direction. I guess I just want to point out, my classic irony I always point to is that Magda Johnson Studios was affordable art space, art space happening next door to CAP. Didn't cost the government anything. There was, you know, 30, 40 different studios creatives happening there. And then the government invested $5 million into CAP. We had to raise another 10 to $15 million from philanthropy. And we're doing a great thing there. But a very similar thing was happening next door already for free and if they had any kind of progressive planning policy that could have protected that use or if, if they had rezoned the site, it's a mixed use zone meaning they can allow for residential and the greatest and best use of that land is a residential and Tim Gurner eventually got his hands on it. But yeah, the irony is the government philanthropists had to spend so much money on CAP and it's going to be an amazing space but next door the thing was kind of already happening and the synergy that we could have had and the, the greater precinct that we could have built with the tow with Major Johnson is lost and and now we have a potential belligerent next door potential I might just open things out a little bit broader than Melbourne there's been a lot of change in the way nightlife space has been governed in recent years particularly in the Dutch context um, and the night czar nightmare night commissioner model seems to have been getting a lot of traction there's now over 40 cities around the world that have that kind of position in place do you think there's potential for that kind of model to be applied in a Melbourne context Who's the question to? Oh. Open to the panel. Well, I don't really know. It's but that idea's been kicking around for a long time. You know, I reckon it could swing either way. It really depends on how you how you focus up the definition of what that person does, whether you give them powers, what those powers are. Um, you know, they could just end up being a yet another you know policing body. Um, I mean, are they going to advocate on behalf of late late night economy? You know, those sorts of things. Is, is culture going to be part of that equation or is it just going to be purely economic? 
Is it going to look at things like, you know, what happens with homeless people? Um, you know, it really depends how you, how you, how you make that position, position work. So, you know, I've got an open mind to it, but I don't think it's any magic panacea, put it that way. Yeah, I think it depends on the context and, and, and the planning jurisdiction. But <clears throat> and also, I, I think that the government and Dick Wynn and Martin Foley and so on have probably got a few nightmares and John Perring and Helen Maku and me and <laughs> I think we enter their dark nights. <laughs> I think... <laughs> yeah. I mean, in a way, we've got... You know, and we've got the organising capacity of SLAM, right? <clears throat> Maybe that's a... Um, you know, a more effective tool than one nominated, ultimately co-opted person. Yeah, I wonder with the nightmare in Amsterdam if it's like a chicken or the egg situation. I've been thinking more and more, like, the fundamental issue is the government doesn't view, you know, transgressive or creative nightlife activity as valid. So any framework or models you create is going to be really difficult while... The Dutch context seems really different and they view it as a lot more valid kind of self-expression. You see, like, people that would seem very, you know, straight-laced at nightclubs in the Netherlands. Um, and, like, Sydney also has, a, I forget the name, but it's effectively, like, a nightmare kind of position, like a nightlife economic advocate and everyone knows how things have gone there. I think, like, it might be good here, and this is from a person who doesn't work in planning, so for what it's worth... One thing that I took as really inspiring from visiting Amsterdam was looking at how this was advocated for by the nightmare, how new 24-hour licenses were given out of the city centre to places that could demonstrate that they had cultural merit, particularly to marginalised communities that also served a community purpose. So there's kind of a legendary club called The School where by the, it's on a big premises, a former school by the day. There's a restaurant and galleries and workshop spaces and a gym and by night, it's a venue with 24-hour access. So it serves kind of a broader community purpose. And I feel like there's a lot of areas here where that model could potentially work. Like the industrial district in North Coburg, there's so many spaces where I feel like if they were rezoned, it would be perfect. There's no neighbors nearby to disturb. In West Melbourne, in Kensington, in parts of Footscray, where there's not a lot of commerce happening and where I think young people would love to go if there was a space that could act as like a community space during the day and as a party space during the night. And I'm really confused on what the barriers to that are happening here. Maybe we need somebody to advocate for nightlife better or maybe it's deeper and more structural than that. I'm not sure. I think that structural question is maybe a really nice spot to almost wrap up on. Just think how, how can we start changing that conversation? How can we start creating a system and a city that better supports transgression or however we view transgression and people pushing boundaries with themselves and their behaviours? Uh, look, I think it's, it'll be difficult, but, but one, of, one of the things that I'm really inspired by in um, Amsterdam and the German cities that I mentioned and, and a lot of Italian cities and is, is I don't think it's such a, so prevalent in America, certainly not in Canada, probably is in Mexico, um, but there's this kind of grey zone um, and, you know, they have words for it. I mean, the German is Duldung um, and, and in, in Dutch is Hedogen. It's this kind of, it's kind of legal, but it's not legal. So, I mean, a good example is, um, um, you know, the marijuana cafes in Amsterdam. So it's, it's legal to um, buy and smoke a spliff, but it's, 
illegal to traffic large quantities. So obviously the way that the cafe owners get the, the weed is through buying and, that, and that's just kind of overlooked because the authorities recognise that, the, you know, the weed cafes are fine and, and they're actually good for the local area. So, you know, there are, there are lots of instances like that where this is kind of, yeah, turn a blind eye, kind of recognise that it's being used responsibly. And I guess that's just one other point that I'd like to make that I've been talking with with Paul, and that is that unlike that situation in that terrible situation in Oakland, although that was, as you say, was a result of the high regulations, there is this very strong culture of taking responsibility in those places, recognising that they're in this kind of grey zone. It's, you know, it's like you look after yourself, you look after your friends, you know. I mean, there are signs up saying, you know, no dickheads. Like, you know, I mean, recognise the space that you're in, that you're going to put everybody in trouble if you lose your cool. You know, don't get trashed. Don't, you know, I mean, and, and there's this very kind of deeply absorbed culture of caring for, for one another as, as well as yourself. So I think our hope is to try to get recognition of that important sort of space um, in Australian cultural life. Um, and it's going to be, you know, a hard road in terms of negotiating with the authorities. But, I mean, basically we take that space. Um, and then it's just a case of how it's dealt with. And we take it again, you know. I mean, that's how it happened in Germany, you know. You take it again. If they take it off you, you take it again. It's, you know, this is something that we can't look to the authorities to regulate for on our behalf. We need to do it ourselves. I think that's probably a really nice point to wrap up on the concept of taking responsibility and caring for one another. So I think saying thank you to everyone for joining us tonight and thank you to all the panellists. Um, hope we can continue the conversation afterwards over a drink and listen to some fantastic music. So thank you all. You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.